Welcome to A Pair of Bookends, the book club you can carry anywhere. We are your hosts and hopefully your new bookish pals. I'm Hannah MacDonald. And I'm Lydia Clare. Welcome to another instalment in our debut Spotlight series where we shine a light on the freshest authors and their work. Today we spotlight the fascinating debut non-fiction book, All That We Are a collection of stories sharing insights from over 20 years of taking psychoanalysis out of the therapy room and into the workplace. All that we are uncovers the hidden truths behind how and why we work the way we do and how we can improve our well-being and performance and build more humane and happier working lives. Gabriella Braun is an author and the director of Working Well, a consultancy firm specialising in helping leaders and teams use in-depth understanding of their dynamics and behaviours to bring about meaningful and sustainable change in their working lives. Gabriella has worked with hundreds of clients, including the British Library, RADA, Tate, Tavistock and Portman NHS Trust, amongst many others. She has had psychoanalysis and holds a master's degree in consulting to organisations using a psychoanalytic and systemic approach from the Tavistock Clinic. She was also a principal consultant in the Tavistock Consultancy Service. Her first book, All That We Are, Uncovering the Hidden Truths Behind Our Behaviour at Work, is out now in paperback and published by Piacus. Gabriella, welcome to a pair of bookends after a shaky start. Honestly, we've had technical difficulties at Make Yeah, girl. I'm very glad to be here and I'm glad the technical difficulties weren't mine this time. <laughs> and it's always me, you can guarantee it, you can guarantee it. I've got no luck, no luck with technology. Thank you for having me. Well, now that we've got you, we're very happy. <laughs> So we always like to start off with our favourite question, which is what are you currently reading or have read recently? Okay, well, I have just finished a book that I think is wonderful and heartbreaking and gut-wrenching. Um, it's called Mornings in Janine. It's not, it's not new. I think it came out in 2011, maybe? But I've only just got to it. It's by, oh, I don't know if I know how to pronounce her name. Susan Abulawa, Palestinian-American. And it tells, a, it's a Palestinian novel, basically. Oh, wow. And it tells a story that we don't normally get to hear. I found it deeply moving, deeply, deeply upsetting. And she's done it brilliantly. And she's oh. had such strength to be able to write this. I've not heard of this before, so I'm uh, definitely going to add that to my list. It sounds yeah. great. It's definitely getting added to a list. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really fun. Oh, amazing. Oh, my goodness. That's a, a gorgeous recommendation. And I, we've obviously got so many questions about, about your book and about you. But firstly, I would love to start off by asking you to kind of tell our listeners a bit more about about yourself and your sort of job role and how that works. And also to tell our listeners exactly what psychoanalysis is. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Well, my role is I I work with leaders and teams across different organisations, as you already said. And I really try and help them work as well as they can by understanding what is going on in them and between them and within the team and within the organisation. And a lot of that is unconscious. So I help them 
to bring some of that, make some of that unconscious more conscious. It's mm-hmm. not that I know it and they don't. It's that together we work it out. We elicit it together by having difficult conversations, by me asking particular questions, by me observing what I'm feeling that might communicate something of what they're feeling. And, and that's how we get there. So in a way, maybe that leads to telling you what psychoanalysis is. To clarify first, I'm not a psychoanalyst. Yeah. I don't treat patients. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I'm not clinically trained, but I'm trained to apply the thinking of psychoanalysis and some of the techniques to working with leaders in coaching and also with teams and people in the workplace. Oh, that hasn't told you what it is, has it? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Um, no. <laughs> so the thing that for me is is very very helpful about psychoanalysis and and quite particular to psychoanalysis is the acknowledgement of the unconscious. So that I think I, I mean there are people who don't believe it exists. I have absolutely no doubt it exists. Of course, you mm. can't scientifically prove it, but I think we have evidence of it all all the time. Like mm. in our dreams, they come from the unconscious. Like in those weird slips of the tongue we suddenly make, and we think, "Well, why did I say that? Where did that come from?" <laughs> Usually from the unconscious. Those kinds of things tell us about the unconscious. The things we remember, the things we forget, they're all parts from the unconscious. Yeah. I think it helps us get at things that we don't normally go to. And the unconscious is part of us all the time. And it affects everything that we do. And it affects us in the work just as much as out of work. The other thing about psychoanalysis is it thinks about things. Some of the things that we take for granted now when we think about our private lives or families, like we talk about sibling rivalry, don't we? We take that as a given. Mm -hmm. And psychoanalysis has taken that as a given or or has thought about that. And of course, it comes into the workplace as well. Why wouldn't it? Mm. We don't think of it in the workplace. But actually, our peers at work are our siblings. And some of the way we relate to them unconsciously is a leftover from our relationship with our siblings. And some of the way we relate to the boss at work is an unconscious leftover from what we felt about the way our, usually for most of us, our parents use their authority because they were our first authority figures. Mm. So all of that I find is really helpful. And that's part of the psychoanalytic thinking. Thank you for that uh, amazing explanation. (laughs) I thought it was a brilliant book and I couldn't help think throughout a lot of it how much places that I'd worked at would have benefited from your coaching. I worked in hospitality for about a decade and just the the atmospheres and the negativity and the kind of toxic environments that I've worked in I thought you know what (laughs) they could have (laughs) really benefited from your work I would I would love to ask we ask in a lot of our debut spotlight episodes what inspired the book and sort of how it came to be so could you tell us a bit about that basically I was inspired partly I think by my own experience a very very long time ago when I became a leader in an organization a manager a leader in an organization and I had pretty terrible time 
as I went up the ladder, I had a, a terrible time. And I couldn't understand half of what was going on. And I couldn't understand why I'd had, I'd loved being a team member and the kind of camaraderie that that produced. And then I didn't understand what changed and what became so difficult. So I think in a way that set the seeds in me of wanting to dig into why was it like that? And why did I at times find work so bloody awful? Mm. Really mm. awful and really damaging and really stressful. And lots of people do, mm. sadly. So I think that was part of it in my background. But then as a consultant, I increasingly found that people were so often so unhappy at work. There was, as you've just said, Hannah, toxicity, terrible dynamics, terrible stress and strain. And I kept thinking, you know, psychoanalysis really has a lot to offer. And yet how many people have heard of it in the workplace? Mm-hmm. And that's partly the fault of people like me who were so bad at taking it into the general world. You know, we're sort of expecting the world to come to us rather than being good at taking it out there. And that gave me the idea of doing a seminar, Mm -hmm. seminar series that I called the What's It Got to Do With It series. And it was what has leadership got to do with psychoanalysis and I did all these different seminars like leadership and love leadership and aggression leadership and Oedipus would you believe people could come for one or the whole series and they came for two and a half hours after work they didn't know me they didn't know about psychoanalysis and they loved it and I I quickly thought like this is a book this could be a book so that that was where it came from and that was the inspiration to kind of I I was therefore very determined to go to a mainstream publisher because I really didn't want to talk to people like me (laughs) people like you you know people who were just interested in why is it like that and what happens and why did I experience that and why did I feel like that or do I feel like that so that that's why that was how it came about and that was my my drive to write a book for the general public yeah. and get a mainstream publisher and you have definitely succeeded <laughs> because it is such a fascinating read mm-hmm. and it really is and you do not have to know and I can't stress this enough you do not have to know about psychoanalysis and you don't really have to know anything to just you just had to have to really have a bit of experience having work somewhere (laughs) that's about it that's probably as relatable as you need to be to this book because it is so so good for our bookings listening who might not have, have picked it up yet it is a collection of these short stories that are kind of focus on different issues and perspectives difficulties that people have in the workplace what was the process like for you gathering and collecting and curating which stories are going to go in like what ones do you want to include and why oh good question it was a hard process <laughs> I think I started by just thinking I'd put in things that seemed quite dramatic you know that would catch the reader's attention and then when I got to the structure, which starts, it's in three, for your listeners, it's in thirds. So the first part is the fundamentals of being human. 
The second part is how we lose ourselves, which is about our destructiveness and how that plays out in the workplace. And the third part is how we find ourselves. So that's about our constructiveness, our huge potential and how that plays out. And once I hit on that, I realised I needed to have stories that would illustrate that, Mm -hmm. illustrate all of Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. And since it was called All That We Are, which I came to quite late, I realised I really needed to include the basics, the fundamentals of all that we are. So that started to govern how I chose stories. But I also, a lot of the stories are kind of composites. So I had to be really careful about making sure clients were, you know, confidentiality was protected. So I might mix a bit of that place with a bit of this place and a bit of that person with a bit of this person. So it's very truthful. But it's not entirely accurate, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. It's not entirely factual. Yeah. Because that person may not have said that. It might have been another person who said that. But it is truthful to the to the essence of what was being conveyed and what was what I was discovering. Absolutely. And uh, did you have any kind of stories that you thought I can't put that in? <laughs> Lots. <laughs> I mean, when I when I got when I was worried, there were a few chapters that I sent to the the person concerned and asked them to read it and to check that they were okay with it. Mm-hmm. I I mean, legally, you don't need to worry about confidentiality. All that matters is that other people can't recognize an organisation. If they can recognize themselves, that's that's okay. Mm-hmm. But I felt very nervous about it. So I asked people because I thought there are a few where they they will know, even though mm. other people wouldn't know. And I mm. checked with them or I spent more time on the disguise. One of the things I got to really late in the process was the the amount I put in about myself. And that at times made me really kind of cringe with exposure, <laughs> anxiety about exposure. And at one point I actually thought I may not be able to work again or mm. do the work I have been doing because I told I've told far more about myself in the book than I ever tell clients. But I decided it, the book warranted it and I'd see what would happen with clients. And actually it has it it's okay. It is okay. I'm not a therapist, so I think it's okay to tell more about yourself and, and people have responded really well to it. Absolutely. Why did you think that you'd get a, a negative response from, from sharing things about yourself? I worried that so to go back to your question about psychoanalysis, what the analyst does is not you don't know much about them at all and that's very deliberate so that you can unconsciously project into them anything you like you know in your fantasy they become whoever it is in your mm-hmm. in your mind your disturbed person in your life or your aggressive person cruel person in your life whoever it is that you've got issues about you push into them and through that in the current tense of the in the present tense the analysis you work on it and you see it now if you know much about your analyst you won't be able to do it mm, actually right. you know and this person isn't remotely cruel I can't you know I, I can't push that 
that at them it doesn't work so that was it wasn't that I thought clients would mind it mm. was that I thought the work won't work mm. yeah they know too much and they wouldn't be able to use me in the way that is helpful that's so interesting yeah I can I can totally see how that might impact the way that you work but for me personally I was selfishly really really glad that you that you shared what you did um, and I know Lydia has a question on that in a bit so I won't <laughs> I won't jump in now but one thing that I really want wanted to ask about which you explored in the book was a a topic that <laughs> me and Lydia really like and it's <laughs> the topic of stress and burnout and I think that's a very I, I don't think you could have written a book about the workplace without exploring those things and there was um a a little quote that I wanted to share with our listeners from the introduction in the in the book and uh if you'd allow me to are you okay with me reading your own book back to you <laughs> <laughs> she's gonna be like cringe I know (laughs) we've spent years dehumanizing the workplace in an attempt to exponentially increase productivity and profit we've tried to rationalize and control our ways of working as if we were robots in the process we've created burnout cultures in which human beings fare badly our lives and our mental health and well-being have suffered so ironically has our work and you also say that you see the effect of stress and burnout on a daily basis. Now that that whole section really, really stuck with me because, uh, like I said, I've worked in hospitality, and I really struggled with anxiety for a long time, and that definitely impacted the way that I was working, especially because I was in, you know, a fast-paced environment. It was very full-on, and I definitely experienced um, burnout during the the pandemic, um, during the whole eat out to help out thing that we did. Um, so it was obviously very intense. And I I wanted to ask, how do you feel that we can? combat these things you know stress and burnout and and be better equipped at at sort of dealing with with these issues in the workplace oh that's a great question I mean I think the pandemic put incredible stress and strain on us Mm -hmm. so I think that's a in a way it's its own that's a particular point in time I think the way very sadly our government handled it and their incompetence Mm -hmm. But also, and maybe even more so, the lack of care they demonstrated. So I think very soon we all thought they, they couldn't give a toss. Actually. Yeah. You know, we're watching vast numbers of people die and they don't seem to care. Yeah. So I think that was a point in time. But I think it, it does have lessons for us. One is that the workplace needs to care. Mm-hmm. and our employers need to care and we and that makes a huge difference to us as as we saw in that when we feel that people genuinely care about our well-being our state of mind our health that in its own right really helps us mm-hmm. so i think that's one thing that makes a difference i think being able to talk about things really makes a difference and and to stick with the pandemic i mean it's quite amazing how quickly we've dropped it from the agenda haven't we you never hear about it really now um mm. if, if long covid isn't a thing it's as if the ongoing effects of trauma isn't a thing they're there yeah 
they're there, but we've dropped them. And it that's kind of been there, done that, sweep it under the carpet, move on. That doesn't help. That doesn't yeah. help because in, in some ways, those things come back to bite us on the bum if we can't actually engage with them and digest them a bit. Mm-hmm. So digestion is another thing that really helps, that people in organisations are helped to digest what they're going through. So eat out to help out would have been hugely stressful, I imagine. Mm -hmm. And I don't know whether there were ever any opportunities for people just to have a space to think about what the hell are we going through? What Mm -hmm. how is it impacting on me, on us, on my family, on you know, on my life? Being able to talk about that and not feel so left alone with it. That can reduce anxiety and help. Just that, but also, even if people feel, oh God, it's not just me. You know, it, it's mm. perfectly normal to feel this kind of anxiety at the moment. That helps. Yeah. Mm. Um, I think, I think the, another thing that helps huge is very important in the workplace, and we're very poor at it, is thinking about containment. That's a concept from psychoanalysis. And psychoanalysis puts a lot of store on the need to contain anxiety so it's not about you know putting it in a box and closing the door closing the lid but it is about keeping it at a manageable level Mm -hmm. and starting with thinking really how parents contain their baby's anxiety and they learn to decipher what the baby means so I think it must be very hard being a baby because you don't understand what's going on and you know when your mum leaves the room how do you know she's going to come back mm-hmm. you don't know so uh, you know gradually you learn but for a long time it, it, it must be very frightening thinking yeah been abandoned or when you're hungry and you're not immediately fed how do you know you're gonna get fed you don't think these things they're more feelings and bodily sensations than anything else but the parent deciphers the meaning of the cries just you know cuddles the baby reassures the baby in a it's not the words the baby understands but it is the tone the soothing and the or or they you know or they change the nappy or whatever they do they've communicated something to the baby and there's a, a great psychoanalytic writer or psychoanalyst who writes who talks about at the beginning in the young life of a child the parent thinks for the child and later thinks with the child and I think I don't think in organizations anyone needs to think for us but I do think they need to think about the times we're getting overwhelmed because mm-hmm too much stress around and what Mm. they need to do to help us by creating spaces where we can talk and by regularly having spaces no I it's rare that an organization has unagended meeting times and I sometimes say to organizations what about just having a bit of time when you can just come together and maybe talk about your preoccupations? Not daily, not even weekly, and not for that long. And it can be big stuff, little stuff. It can be work stuff. It can be home stuff. It can be, you know, a worry about a child, a worry about a parent, or a delight in a prize that you won, or a your child one or whatever it is that just gives a bit of space and starts to humanize we get better then at allowing a bit more of who we are to be talked about at work it's so important and I love that that me and Hannah are just like taking it in taking it in well, yeah it's I think <laughs> 
like it said in the book about seeing seeing people as as robots you know like we we are human beings and it's really important to to have that check-in and and seeing people as humans and having a bit of compassion and empathy for people and I think you know the the lack of compassion and empathy we definitely saw during COVID and I think it was it was really important that you explored that in the book and I I really appreciated it and could and could relate to it quite a lot and I'm sure there's lots of people out there that will find something within everything you write about stress and burnout especially during COVID so I guess thank you for for writing that um, it's, it's, it's very much needed <laughs> we appreciated it we appreciated it a lot <laughs> There's also a great moment in the story, The Looking Glass, where you quote Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. And the quote is, I knew who I was when I got up this morning, but I think I must have been changed several times since then. Um, And it's a great, it's just a brilliant quote, like I love it. But it's a great description of of sort of how we can become blinded by assumptions, misconceptions about people, about ourselves, you know, about how we should live in the moment and and things. And especially when we apply it to the workplace, it takes on a completely new meaning. What advice would you give to people to try and not fall into that trap of, you know, I think we've all been there where we've assumed something or or assumed something of someone else? Yeah. Oh God. I mean it's easy to say and hard to do, but I think the 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 default is to keep checking in with us with ourselves. So just stop ourselves and think, hang on, I, I'm saying that to myself as if it's a fact. Mm-hmm. But is it a fact? Or is that an assumption I've now made? Mm-hmm. I think getting into the habit of asking ourselves that question, you know, have I just assumed, how do I know that that person thinks that or feels that or behaves like that? How do I actually know that? Mm-hmm. So keep asking ourselves on the basis that we do, as you say, we all fall into the trap of making assumptions and assuming facts of things are fact when they're not. I mean, it's a fasc- absolutely fascinating subject. And I, I really enjoyed the way that you explored so many different ways that we can assume or misconstrued people. I mean, in quite a number of the stories, you kind of, you want to s- scream at the book <laughs> because you're like, no, because she's clearly not doing what you think she's doing. Or, you know, the world doesn't hate you. It's just, you've had some really bad luck. <laughs> And it's so fascinating to see these kind of different aspects of it. How conscious were you of like making sure you got a wide variety of perspectives on stuff like that? I suppose I was conscious. I knew I needed a a different, I couldn't just have one point of view or Mm -hmm. one perspective. I needed different perspectives. And also I really wanted readers to relate to the book. And I knew that in that way there had to be enough variety for different people's experiences to find mm. hooks there to find something that they could personally resonate with mm-hmm. I was really curious and this um is isn't a question that I've had written down but it's one that played on my mind throughout reading the book and Lydia stop shaking your head at me I'm <laughs> shaking my head honestly she goes off script every time <laughs> <laughs> It's, I just, I'm so curious, I have to ask. Um, I'm being supportive in the workplace, it's absolutely fine. You have creative freedom. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) When you're coaching for like various clients, do you find that you have clients 
coming to you a lot from a particular industry? Like, is there an industry that you feel requires coaching a lot more than others, if that makes sense? It does make sense. Um, You're not allowed to share that. (laughs) (laughs) And to a certain extent, there are some that require it because of the nature of the work. Mm -hmm. Actually, I can imagine hospitality is one, but they don't come my way. Yeah. Mm. So I think they they probably aren't an industry that I don't know they won't have come across this way of working I don't know if it's where they'd be at but I can imagine that the work I mean I'm thinking on my off the top of my head now and Hannah you'll obviously know far more than I will about this but I imagine just the nature of the kind of having to always be a bit subservient to the customer must set up a lot really must set up a lot so I imagine it's you know that that will create a lot of stress and anxiety but as I say they don't come there'll be other kinds of work that automatic like people working in mental health will come because one they think like that but two the nature of their work means that they have to detoxify from some of the difficulties Mm. they're they're dealing with all the time so people in health might well come Mm. um creative industries are quite good at coming I I wouldn't say they necessarily need it more than others at all but they're quite good at thinking about those things they're more open than some industries I think some industries are just more open than others yeah but then some are surprising like I've had law firms that I wouldn't have expected you know for Mm. example I imagine that work is is really intense though and it is you know a lot of long hours and yeah I think it just evolves a lot of of mental work doesn't it um but you know how and you you do mention it in the book that you know companies are starting to have like mental health training and things like that have you noticed like positive change in and and maybe some like progress in workplaces um that have had that mental health training like do you find that they're a bit more open or do you think it it doesn't work you know what are your kind of thoughts on like mental health training Uh, (laughs) and you can tell from the expression in my on my face I'm very dubious about it Mm -hmm. I do well I'm not I don't think and it's there's a particular expression isn't there mental health is it mental health first aid or something yes thank you mental health first aid thank you I think that is good as far as it goes but it doesn't go far Mm. and I think the danger is that then organizations think okay we've done that we took that box that's okay yeah, but yeah. what they're doing is saying, look, this is what to look for. And this is where you need to step in and tell someone to go and get help. Well, that's great, but it doesn't go far. And one of the problems is that the places where you might have thought they need to go to get help, a lot of them have closed because mm. things were, you know, funding cuts. So mm. I think it's that mental health first aid is both a good step and perhaps a little bit of a danger in thinking that that's it then because it's a, mm, yeah. it's a step. no I think you've hit the nail on the head there <laughs> um, <laughs> now throughout obviously the obviously I keep saying obviously it's uh I've, I've got a word every time we do a podcast I've got a every word time. that I repeat non-stop every and today time. it's today it's obviously sorry <laughs> So throughout the the various stories in the book, I I sort of noticed a common thread with a few of the workplaces. And that was that when you were working with some um, companies and some people, when you were coaching them through a particularly uncomfortable period of, of like growth and change, you know, they were learning things about themselves. 
you know, there were some people that would no longer require these sessions or they would sort of run away from from dealing with those things. Why do you think it's so uncomfortable for us to to deal with issues in the workplace sort of head on? I think, and I, I say this in the book, I think we're very frightened of really knowing ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I think we're frightened that if we say things in the workplace, everything's going to go wild and out mm. of control and it'll all fall apart and we'll yeah. have rounds that we can never recover from. And I think there's a fear of fragility that actually often isn't true. That pe- I mean, if, if they're supported, people can often, and if they learn how to do it, people can often have far more robust conversations than they imagine they'll be able to. Mm-hmm. But I think there is a real fear that we're going to cause terrible offence to our colleagues. And after all, we have to see them tomorrow and we have to come <laughs> in with them and we're on the same project team or whatever it is. So I think that's part of the fear. It's so yeah. fascinating, though, how how scary it is for us to to deal with things in the workplace. It, and it's really scary. Yeah. But scary in our personal lives as well. I mean, some yeah, of that's the true. people in the book that kind of run or, or leave the sessions are also individual coaching yeah. clients who it's too painful to go any further with that down mm. avenue. It, it, they're frightened of the pain it will bring. They make that, not, that might not be conscious, but they kind of decide, oh, I'm fine now. It's all fine now. And off they go. And I think sometimes that's because unconsciously they're thinking, oh, where's this going to go? Oh, my God. Yeah. That's scary. It's avoiding, isn't it? I think as well, the um, the story in the book about the literary agency and you meet with them individually, the three bosses or agents I can't remember what exactly their job titles were but they all sort of collectively ran the uh, the the agency and they each came to you and sort of said the same things and they were all thinking of leaving and I think it's it's so it's almost like the easy way out although it doesn't feel like it it's like rather than having to handle the situation that's going on here you know it's best that we just kind of step away that seems like it's the only outcome that we could possibly comprehend yeah yeah and in that case they didn't you know they did some fantastic work and they they didn't leave I mean I was worried I thought oh god they really might all go (laughs) and they didn't know that the others were thinking the same thing I thought they might go and this place might collapse but Mm. they did the work and they stuck at it and they didn't leave and they went from strength to strength actually yeah and I think I think it's really interesting when we talk about having those difficult conversations, because in one chapter you bring up the Challenger and Columbia spatial incidents, which I mean, bookends listening at home will know that I'm fascinated with anything kind of aeronautical. So I, I really appreciated those references because <laughs> they really gives you an insight into into what went wrong and why. But particularly about the fact that if some more difficult conversations were had initially, that some of what happened may or may not have been prevented or things could have been preventable. Yeah. Why do you think that it's so easy to put these blockades in place for ourselves sometimes and for others to put them on us where we don't feel like we can speak or that we shouldn't speak? Because I always feel like that 
that's the easy thing is to be stopped as opposed to push through those kind of barriers and go no actually this is dangerous or you know because in some cases such as the the challenge during the Columbia incidents they there were things that were you know life-threatening that people did not bring up because they were fearful I think um, a couple of things one is the culture can mean that we feel very nervous about stepping out of the group norm and saying something that will be really difficult and NASA is an example of somewhere that you know how can you go against NASA you know supreme it's also I, I don't have any idea now and it's likely to have changed a lot but it was a very self-idealizing organization so then Mm. it's really hard to go against that and say actually guys stop look no we're not perfect Mm -hmm. I quote a book about NASA is the perfect place well if it's perfect how can you say anything is wrong so that's Mm -hmm. an organizational culture that makes it very difficult to speak out and we we absorb the culture we know it you know like the emperor's new clothes where it's the child that says but he's got no clothes (laughs) (laughs) nobody else says anything you just you you feel it in the air don't you you know what to say and what not to say and Mm. it's very powerful and it Mm. took the innocence of a child to point out the truth so that that's one thing but the other thing about the way we'll turn a blind eye and not say things is the possibility of chance that Mm. we might think to ourselves well there's a chance that it won't be a problem I think it might be a problem but on the other hand it might not so Mm -hmm. therefore we might find a way of letting ourselves off the hook Mm -hmm. from that Mm -hmm. difficult place of being the one that steps out of line and of course we know that whistleblowers if that's what we are when we do that whistleblowers can have a terrible time Mm. and out of their organizations be you know really treated very very badly so it's a scary thing to do yeah Absolutely. And I, I mean, I, from personal experience, I, I worked in the education sector as a teacher and um, for a short time and it was, you know, I'm glad it was short. But again, that kind of culture of like, we, you can't, you can't say that this is not right. You know, you can't say that working three hours unpaid at the end of the day is you know is industry standard and that's just how you should take it you know and it is very much a kind of case of like oh just go go with what everybody else says because that's the way we've done it forever and that's the way it will be forever (laughs) and it is so easy to fall into that trap absolutely and and of course it means that things don't change Mm. I think it's a very similar thing with hospitality as well that you know you're sometimes just expected to stay on and if you know your manager says can you can you stay on for a few more hours and you go oh no I've got plans they're really funny with you for having Mm. a life outside of work (laughs) (laughs) and there used to be shifts that I did um that would be it, it wouldn't even have a finish time on the rotor it would just say till till d and it would mean till dead so it'd mean like you know, whenever they decide that you can go home, then you could go home. And that was just accepted. And if you questioned it, you know, you were the one in the wrong. Mm. <laughs> so it's, mm. Like I said, I think you could really work your magic on a lot of these <laughs> things. Well, I don't know that they let me near them. 
I mean, yeah. <laughs> That's true. Um, now, I would really love to ask as my final question on the book about your chapter on kindness, which almost links to the stress and burnout uh, chapter we were talking about before. And I loved in that chapter that you talked about um, your friend uh, Lottie during a particularly difficult period in her life. And you also explore, I think you describe unkindness was used as a currency in one of your jobs and I would love to know why it was important to you to include Lottie's story and and what do you want readers to to take away from her story? I think well it was important to me because I think kindness is underrated Mm -hmm. and it can make such a difference to every aspect of our lives being kind being in a kind environment and sometimes it doesn't take that much to be kind and I thought Lottie's experience from her medical team really demonstrated because as I heard about it I suddenly thought oh god this is a workplace Mm. of course this is a workplace and they are really kind Mm-hmm. And you could see the how helpful it was for Lottie, but also she experienced it as really helping the team themselves. Mm-hmm. It was modelled by the consultant and it went to every member of the team. So they, the members of the team treated her and presumably their other patients very well and very kindly and with a lot of care and thought, even though we know that, you know, this was the NHS and they're under enormous pressure themselves. But also it, you got the feeling that they treated each other well as well and that they liked mm. And one of them did say to her, the consultant's great to work for, you know, that they felt lucky as well to work because mm. he said how lucky she felt to be under mm-hmm. his care. So I think the story just spoke so much about the simplicity at a very deep level of kindness and what a great difference it can make. And I suppose that's what I want readers to take away. Because also it's something we can all do. I think some of the time people think, well, what can I do? I'm low down in the pecking order. You know, it's the boss who can make the difference or the chief exec who can make the difference. Well, that's true about lots of things, but it's not totally true about kindness. We can all be kind to each other, even about small things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it makes a difference. It really does. And and as well as making a distinction between being kind and being a pushover or being, you know, you know, that th- there is a distinction. You can be kind and but you don't you're not sacrificing anything by no, being a kind person. It's not about being a pushover at all. And sometimes being kind includes, you know, saying no, giving bad news, all of those things. But it's better to do that than not to do that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There you go, Hannah. So you have to be kind to me now forever. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, all right. Uh, No, she is, she is. Finally, I just wanted, first of all, on behalf of me and Hannah, just to thank you for this book because it has been such a wonderful, enlightening experience. It really has. Because not only is the book comprehensive and informative, but it also contains a lot about you personally and a lot about things that will chime with you with us as readers 
I know that you wrote, and we've touched on it before at the beginning, but you wrote a lot about yourself personally. And that, for me, really brought the book to life because it it was so so good to hear from you and it really helped to bring in perspective your experiences and alongside everybody else's can you tell us just a little bit more about why you wanted to include more of you in the book I I suddenly well the the turning point for me was the chapter on belonging and when I started that I suddenly had this idea maybe this should be first person maybe I should write this about me and I wrote to my editor and said what what do you think and she said give it a go you know (laughs) try it could be good and I tried it and actually loved writing it and and that's the chapter that first brings me fully into the picture doesn't it really Mm -hmm. I always knew that I'd have bits on my thinking around the work and what I was experiencing including difficult feelings like when I'm thinking you know god let's let me get out of here um I knew I'd have those kinds of things, but I had no idea I'd bring in stuff about my background, my history, my family. And and I, when I wrote that, I suddenly thought, well, actually, this makes sense because the book is called All That We Are. So why wouldn't I include something of what, who I am? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. Otherwise, there's something missing. There's a gap. It's as if I'm saying to the reader, all that you are, but it doesn't count me, of course. I'm, I'm fully sorted. I don't have any <laughs> stuff, you know. So it f- then felt very important as part of the book to include that and to kind of I suppose what I felt I was doing and I like that I felt I was then putting myself alongside the reader mm-hmm. rather than some distant author voice I was mm-hmm. with the reader absolutely and it, it works so well and especially when I, there are some thoughts you have when you're consulting and talking to people that actually maybe laugh out loud like just things like oh god <laughs> come on this <laughs> is <just> like yes <laughs> she's saying what I'm thinking <laughs> oh that's really good to hear <laughs> yeah. I think as well when you were saying before that you were you know you were almost worried when you started writing more about yourself you know you were worrying that of, of receiving a negative response or it impacting your work in any way I actually think it surely makes you more appealing that you you share all of that you know you share about your your heritage and your family and your upbringing, you know, your awareness of of class and wealth privilege and all those things. And I just think, you know, it's, you're clearly a very open-minded person and you approach your work in a very compassionate and empathetic way. And I think that's what makes the book so sort of special and relatable. And I think that's why it's chimed so well with us because you've shared so much of yourself alongside all these other experiences as well that's really Um, lovely feedback thank you and (laughs) I must say my my editor was very keen on the personal stuff yeah she Mm -hmm. felt this is what turns the book this this is what adds 
thing. I can yeah. imagine. And it also makes it so much more accessible as well. You know, it's not a lot of nonfiction books are, are quite scary to approach because you just assume they're going to be quite dense. And yeah. it's just this just wasn't that at all. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. And I know that a lot of our listeners are going to enjoy this book as well. So I will, of course, be popping a link in the show notes for our listeners to order a copy for themselves. As we said, it's out now in paperback and published by Payakus. I never know yeah. if I'm pronouncing that right yet. <laughs> but before we let you go we always like to finish on recommendations so that can be anything that you think if people have read my book they might like this book as well um it can be just another book you've enjoyed recently or another tv film or anything you can think of you'd like to recommend we'd we'd love to share it with our listeners well actually let me recommend a couple of recent novels that I've Perfect. read. So Perfect. I'm, I'm a big novel writer. So, and I, I love some of the Irish writers. Yes. I love Donal Ryan and his latest book, The Queen of Dirt Island, oh. is just wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. And if, if anyone, you know, doesn't do long chapters and stuff, each of his chapters is 500 words. Oh wow! <laughs> I like being yes. It's just, and it, it and he writes beautifully, really beautifully. So I absolutely recommend that. Isn't that? I mean, I know you're listening. It's gorgeous. It's, gorgeous. it's a gorgeous cover. Yeah, I know people can't see it, but it's a gorgeous. Cover. It's beautiful. Um, he is a fabulous writer, and another fabulous, fantastic writer, Sebastian Barry. This oh, is yes. his latest, Old God's Time. I've heard good things about this. Extraordinary book. Oh. Really extraordinary. Absolutely love both of them. So, and highly recommend both of them. Amazing. I will definitely be uh, popping and ordering for those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Gabriella, this has been so wonderful having you on and, and getting to hear more about your process and about your book and I just think it's so interesting and it's going to be so valuable to so many people thank you so much and um I is there anywhere that our listeners can find you on social media or do you have a website that they could uh, follow your work through website. so the the writing website is gabriella brown b-r-a-u-n dot yeah. and then there's a work website which is workingwell.cc and on twitter i'm brown b-r-a-u-n gabriella i've just realized oh, i've pronounced your name wrong several times bad. i'm so Every, sorry no, don't worry at all it's completely normal and it's not precious about it and on linkedin i can't remember what i am at <laughs> they can find you on there we'll find you yeah. oh amazing i will try and find you on there also and pop it in the show notes if anybody oh, wants to to look for you really lovely to talk to you both thank you so much no thank oh, you so much it's been lovely yeah, we've loved having you on. Um, and to our listeners, as I've said, you can order yourself a copy of All That We Are, which um, you can find a link to in the show notes. As Gabriella said, you can follow her on uh, follow her and her work on the many websites she suggested. And if you'd like to give us a follow, you can do so at A Pair of Bookends Pod on Instagram and at A Pair of Bookends on Twitter and TikTok. And if you enjoyed this episode, please, as always, don't forget to rate, review and subscribe so we 
we can reach more listeners and that is all we've got time for so thank you so much for listening and thank you once again Gabriella this has been amazing thank you bye, thank you. bye. bye.